Uh, well, we're in a series called Learning to Lead, and for some of you, this is like the first time in the series, and I think it's going to be the best so far, so it's going to be a good one. And, but let me give you a little bit of an outline. We're looking at a letter called 1 Timothy, and it's an ancient letter, and here's how it breaks down. This might be helpful to set our minds thinking. Uh, chapter 1 is about confidence. There are false teachers. And so his word to Timothy and the church is know what you believe. Know it. Be confident in your faith. Why? There are going to be people who come with all sorts of ideas that sound good and are culturally relevant, but out of line with the way of Jesus. And so we need to be confident in what we believe so we can stand up for the truth. But we don't just do it ourselves. Chapters 2 and 3 go into what it means to be a part of a family, a church, or I like, I like to say a team. We're in this together. And so we're in the middle of chapter 2 today. Then there's leadership by example. In a couple of weeks we'll be in chapter 4. What does it mean for us to grow in not just talking about the truth, but living it out in day-to-day -day life with wisdom and with generosity. So we'll be in 1 Timothy through just about the end of January. Uh, but we're going to look at the end of chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, go to 1 Timothy 2, um, and starting in verse 8. And we're looking at leading in team. How do we, as a community, follow Jesus together as leaders, which you're a leader, I'm a leader, we lead someone. Could be a child, could be a company could be an entire industry, but you are a leader, but also as followers, because I'm a leader, but I'm also a follower. How do we do that together? How do we fulfill our calling as a church to lead well and show the community that men and women who have nothing in common can follow Jesus and he, he can reorient our way to him? I thought it would be helpful to do this in team because we're talking about teamwork. So I'm going to invite up to the stage uh, Taylor Turkington. She's going to join me. Welcome Taylor as she comes. And, yeah, Taylor is Taylor's a gifted Bible teacher and a friend. She's not one of our staff pastors. She's not one of our elders, but she's been coming to the church for a couple of years and is a, a leader. And she has helped and taught in some of our women's events and she won't boast in it, but she just finished her doctorate of ministry degree in preaching. And yeah, uh, a couple of us were able to go and be a part of, of her in that final meeting and, you know, defending her thesis. And I'm honored to not only know Taylor as a friend, but one of the leaders of our church. And she's going to come read the text and we're going to dive in and do this together. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to start us by reading us in the text, starting in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Uh, Merry Christmas. Not <laughs> like dropping a December bomb. Uh, what in the world? Are you kidding me? Well, today's an important conversation because 
of at least three things. We're going to look at this text together, Terrell and I, and we're going to have a conversation. Today may feel a little more like a lecture than an inspirational talk, but it's important that we know the truth. Hear me. Three things I want us to think about. This is Scripture. And so often if we read through the Bible, we find portions we don't like, and we often skip it. Because we just don't understand it. But remember, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. So we don't skip parts of the Bible. It's why as a church we mostly go through long passages so I don't have the ability to skip the things I don't like. This is a letter. This is really important. As we look at this text, remember Paul's writing a real letter to a real group in Ephesus He's writing to a real leader named Timothy. So before we jump to conclusions, and some of you are already like, holy cow, get me out of here. I wish I weren't sitting in the middle. But it would be very weird if you left now. We'll tell you the appropriate times to leave. But um, what, is, what is Paul saying? we got to think about who he's writing to and what's happening before we come to a conclusion. And finally, this is a complex passage. Some parts of the Bible are straightforward. Others require a little more care and thought and prayer. Ever read Shakespeare? I know you had to. That was written 500 years ago in English, and I don't get it. Right? Now, the Bible is written in Hebrew and Aramaic and in Greek, written covering a span period of 5,000 to 2,000 years ago. So we should just be honest and say certain things take a little time because our culture is so different than their culture. But two things that we need to remember as we jump into this text, and we're going to look at it word by word. We have the Holy Spirit. And so some would say, well, there are hard parts of the Bible, so I don't know if I want to read it or bother studying it. Wait a minute. The same Holy Spirit who authored and motivated and guided the writers is the same Holy Spirit who lives in you if you follow Jesus. So there are things that take time to understand, but we believe the Holy Spirit gives clarity and doesn't leave us in the dark. And secondly, we have a church family. This passage has been talked about for 2,000 years. We're not the first kids on the block. And so we have the benefit of seeing godly men and women look at the text and help us discern what it means. Now, Taylor's going to begin, and we'll start working through with verse 8. Okay, friends, let's read verse 8 again. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. This whole passage is about what it looks like to live as someone who is living in a way that fits people who follow Jesus. Because if you look up in verse 4 and 5, you see that Paul's already said, he's talked about Jesus as the mediator. He's the one who has ransomed us. And now he says, now we live together as people fittingly who follow Jesus. It's about men who pray in a fitting manner, women who dress in a fitting manner, women who learn in a fitting manner, and authority placed in a fitting manner. All of it in a fitting manner as people who worship God. So first we go back to praying. Paul talks about how to pray. Men were struggling to pray in a manner fitting of someone who follows Jesus. They were, weren't lifting up holy hands, which isn't making you lift your hands, but calling you to have a clear conscience when you pray, with a right heart before God. Instead, there was this disputing. There was anger. Men were holding a grudge. 
deciding who they liked and who they didn't like and were fighting arguments in their head when they should have been praying. It was impacting the prayers of the church. And women were not taking into account how they dressed in a way that fits a woman who follows Jesus. Their dress was improper, without sound judgment, the words imply. It's as if they weren't even thinking about it, how it should impact them as someone who follows Jesus. It was focused on sexual appeal. Pride and self-centeredness leads us to get attention, and either was distracting men, or it was making poor and less trendy people feel inferior. These are the opposite of serving each other. So how do we live this out? For the men, we recognize that as a response to what Jesus has done, we lay down anger. We come to prayer with right hearts, holding ourselves in a way that we trust God no matter what has happened. So brothers, is there anger today that you need to lay down before the Lord? Is there a grudge that you need to stop thinking about? Is there an argument that you are replaying in your head today? Ladies, you may need to hear this as well. Sometimes I do. And women, this means that we must recognize that the world sees clothes as the most important way that people see you. It's the way that people absorb who you are. But the Bible teaches us something different about clothes. Clothes don't express who we are, it says. The Bible says from the very beginning in Genesis, it has always been God's plan to clothe us, to cover us that God was going to forgive our sin and change us in such a way that those of us who have come to know Jesus have now been clothed with a new self, Paul says in Colossians. And he tells us now to clothe ourselves with compassionate hearts and humility and patience. And here in this text, it says that we clothe ourselves with good works. This is what we put on to show who we are. It's not our clothing that impacts who we are, not our jewelry, but rather we are clothed because of who Jesus has made us. And one day we will be clothed with glory when we finally see Jesus face to face. That's the true beauty that we are looking forward to. Sisters, the Bible radically changes the way we see clothing. How do we live this out? We avoid extremes where one end we move into legalism and we say men Women say that women cannot wear clothes that are fancy. We can't wear jewelry. We can't wear makeup. And we avoid license where we say, it doesn't matter what you wear, whatever you want. Instead, we say we live in a fitting manner of someone who follows Jesus. Our clothes reflect that. And we use sound judgment. And we use modesty to honor one another in our clothes. Men, that goes for you as well. All of us need to wear what we want to wear to honor Jesus when we gather. The focus is to be on him and not on ourselves. The, the passage is about living in a fitting way because we've been knitted together as a team, as a family, as a church. We have to think about what we do and the impact it has on others. Well, that, those are the easier verses. Okay, that was a warm-up. You did really well. Now let's get into the nitty-gritty. Verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission and I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, what is the situation? This is where knowing about Ephesus is going to help us. You see, at the time of Jesus, in the time of these writers, uh, in both Jewish culture, in the synagogues, and in Roman culture, in the ordinary day life, 
a woman teaching a man in public was totally inappropriate. See, we just assume everything has always been like we experience it today. Not so. As a matter of fact, it would have been seen as weird and off for a woman to teach any guy in public. And that's the important place to start. So what Paul is talking about is already assumed by everyone around them. He's not saying anything radical or new. If you're in a Jewish synagogue, a woman is not going to get up and teach. And so he's speaking to the norm. And remember, he's writing about their gatherings. Early in the chapter, as, as Taylor was saying, we learned about prayer and praying in a fitting way. And so he's, he's evaluated and heard about what's going on on Sunday mornings, so to speak. He's seen things that are off. He's seeing somehow, and he doesn't list the details. Why? He's writing a letter to people who know what's going on. They know. But something in their gathering is off. Men and women are arguing in the church. They're asking questions in the church. They're being disruptive in the church. And he's saying the goal is unity. The goal is that we honor Jesus in the way we gather together. Now, there are two terms, if you're reading anything about this passage, that sound fancy, but they're really helpful to understand what they mean. I'll throw them on the screen for you. They're not in the text, but they describe what the text is leading to. Complementarian, which is men and women are equal before God, but have different roles. When people read this verse, they either read from one or two lenses. Now, there are tons of nuances. Just like if I say uh, conservative and liberal, what in the world does that mean? It depends on your take, and there are varying degrees. Complementarian says equal before God, but God's given roles for men and women in the gathered church, and we should honor that. Why? Because if God says it, we should hold it as right and true. The second understanding of it is what's called egalitarian. Complement, complement one another. Egalitarian, the way I remember it, is equal. In other words, there's no distinction between men and women. Because of Jesus, men could do anything. Women could do anything. The Bible doesn't necessarily limit anyone to anything. Those are two different ways. Now, that plays out in marriage. That plays out in the church. And plays out in all sorts of leadership. And so the question is... Where are we all on the spectrum of understanding? This may be brand new information. Can I just say as a loving word, as one of your pastors here, you're already influenced by the culture you live in. You and I are influenced. So as Jesus followers, what we want to do is evaluate what our culture says is right and true in light of God's revelation, the truth, the scriptures. And so we don't just say because everyone everywhere is saying this is right and true. We don't assume that that's the heart of God. So we come back to the text and we let the text drive us. What's Paul's corrective? What does he say to do here? Well, it may not seem obvious in English, but in Greek, these sentences only have one command. There's only one command. The command is what you probably aren't thinking of. Women should learn. Command. The command is that men and women both learn in the church, and we didn't make sure, Timothy, as a leader and your leadership team, that women are growing and learning in the Bible. 
that's the command. The command to silence is not a command. It's a statement about what Paul had experienced and what he shared with this church and other churches. So hear me. Paul is encouraging growing and learning, men and women both digging in. So as a practical word, ladies here in the church, learn, study, know the Bible. When classes are given, take them. Find a seminar. Taylor leads an entire track. We'll let you know about a conference that she's helping to lead on ladies learning the word of God to teach the word of God. You can grow, and the command is you should grow. When it comes to faith, it's not the guys in a relationship know it and the ladies follow along. We're all learning, but the challenge is how. And this is where we don't know the firm details of what's going on in this church, but how they're approaching their learning is causing a real problem, which is why this sounds really weird to 21st century ears. Verse 12, this is going to sound very good to you ladies, I promise. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Holy cow. Just saying it. I feel the heat. From I feel heat waves of heat. What is going on? Okay, what's going on and how, how do we live this out? Now, listen to the whole discussion first, please. We see from this text and other texts, starting as early as Genesis, that in God's revelation of what men and women should be and look like, there is a complementarian view. Men and women are equal in the sight of God, equally loved by God, but God from the beginning has given roles that he's chosen to give to men and roles that he's chosen to give to women. One of the roles in the church, which we'll look at next week, here's the problem with chopping it up, is we have to wait till next week to look at chapter 3. Always look at what goes before and what follows. What follows is discussion about elders. And so we're going to pick up on this next week. And we see from the text that God has designed a role within the church called the elder to lead and guide men and women. And those elders are to be men. Now, now hear me. This should never lead to sexism. Sexism, sexism says that someone is better because of their gender alone or superior, because I'm male or superior, because I'm female. That is not what this is teaching. Men and women both equally created in the image of God and equally loved by God. But write this down. This is going to be helpful. Elders are to lead the community in theology and practice. He's talking here about the gathered church. When we get together, the elders are to lead in the teaching. So there's a fitting place for everyone in the church. Elders, who happen to be men, more on that next week, are to lead the community, including teaching and pastoral care. The elder team is to make sure that people are growing in the grace of God. And if false teachers come, it's the elder's responsibility to evaluate everything that's said in light of the word of God and to stop bad teaching and promote teaching in the way that honors Jesus. But here's what this doesn't mean. And, and ladies, you need to hear this especially. It doesn't mean a woman can never speak in church. Otherwise, we're just breaking the rule right now. And if you read 1 Corinthians 11, the entire chapter is talking about a discussion on how the proper fitting way that women are to pray and to prophesy in the local church. So this is much less about physical silence. 
and it is about a humble and teachable attitude. And what we do know, because Paul gives a corrective, somehow the attitude and the approach to the community was being challenged by some of the ladies in the church. But hear me. As a local church here, because we need to apply this, we have men and women who lead us in worship. We had, we had Lonnie and Brendan leading us in worship. We have men and women who are sharing the word of God and men and women who lead in communion. But most of our teaching is done by our elders. I teach about 60 to 70% of the time, and I'm one of the elders here. And Steve Marshman teaches a good chunk of the other time. And then we have Scott Ballard who taught here just a few weeks ago, and John Ogle and Scott Wagner and Brandon Moser. We are the elders in this church. So even if we're not physically teaching, because I don't think the text is saying only elders can communicate the Bible, but it's the elders' responsibility to take the seriousness of the Bible and how it's shared and how it's applied. And so even if one of the elders aren't teaching, we ask everyone to submit their notes in advance so we can read what's being said, challenge it, test it, clarify it. So by the time you get it, it's just better. It's just better. It's clearer. And so that's the responsibility of an elders. Remember, this is a conversation about what's fitting. So teaching is to be led by a team of elders. Now, we don't know the details, but it's important enough to know that what Paul's talking about here is a corrective. They're against the heart of the scriptures. Taylor? Some of those verses that Jose just read are some of the most studied of my life. You can maybe imagine why that's true. <laughs> I am a woman. And I am a woman who feels called to teach the Bible. I have a doctorate in preaching. And I believe that God has revealed his truth in his word. So I've read a lot of books and a lot of commentaries on these verses. And I've wrestled with this. I've walked through situations, honestly, friends, where these verses have been used unfairly against me. I have been told at times that I cannot make announcements in front of groups because men might feel that I was giving them instructions if I was telling them about an event that was coming next week. <laughs> I have been told that if I was going to speak in front of the youth on a Wednesday night, I could say wise things, but I had better not quote the Bible. I have been told that I need to pretend that I don't know things about the Bible because it makes men feel uncomfortable when I quote theology. I'll be honest, this hurt. I was confused and deeply wounded at times. Maybe some of you have been there too. Friends, I don't think that this is what this text is teaching, but it made me wrestle with it because I want what God wants. And at the end of the day, I believe that what God says is true. Therefore, I need to understand what this says so that I can follow him rightly in a fitting manner, right? I think these next verses that we're about to read will help. Let's look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I know, what the heck is going on? Trust me, this can help. It will help. We'll get through this. We live in a time when male and female are not terms that anyone is allowed to define. Our culture says 
all kinds of things about them. But God says something definite about them. He says something unmoving about them. Paul says that God made men and women different from the beginning. Adam was made first, these texts are pointing back to Genesis, and he was made distinct from the final and wonderful creation of Eve. There is distinction between them. And first meant something to these first readers in Bible times. It meant a responsibility and a leadership role. No one was inferior, but there was distinction between men and women. And in the beginning, Eve was deceived. Do you remember that from Genesis? And this was partially due to the fact that authority wasn't put in the proper place. It wasn't in the fitting place. Adam had been given leadership and the commands from God, but then he didn't lead. When the serpent came and was speaking to Eve and deceived her and she sinned, Adam said nothing. And they both sinned and the world radically changed. Disobeying God. There were roles beautiful, God-given, empowering roles, and they were ignored. Paul says here, don't do that. But see, in all of this, it's not saying that women can't be saved or that women are always falling into temptation. That's not what this text is saying. Then finally, in verse 15, he's taught about how women are saved. They are sought after by God as well. At the same time, the phrase, women will be saved through childbearing, is tough. Okay, we'll talk about this. Let's be clear, this does not mean that we have to have a kid to be saved. (laughs) The word saved focuses on different things in the Bible. And here, it's not talking about how women come to faith, but it's talking about how women grow in their faith. It's talking about how women grow spiritually. And women are to grow spiritually by doing the work that God has put before them. And in those days, a lot of that work that God had put before them was raising children. And today, it can still be the work that God has put before you can still be children. But that is a good work that God wants you to do. But it can also be bringing up spiritual children. It can also be other things that God has put before you. But he's saying that women should do that work, the work that God has put before them, that this will help them grow spiritually. Sisters, as we talk about things like this, if there is an ache in your heart because you are someone who wants children and still yet has not had them, can I look you in the eye and say that Paul is not speaking about you here? He is not disqualifying you in any way. Rather, he is talking about us moving forward in the things he has had women to do in a fitting manner. And he says that he wants women to continue in faith, love, and holiness. Doesn't that sound like the Christian life? And with propriety. Propriety is that same word that was used earlier when he was talking about how women should dress. It means self-control. It means the fitting manner. He's saying women should be doing things differently because they know Jesus. They should be living in a fitting manner in the things that God has put before them as someone who follows him. I said these verses would help, and you may have decided that I was lying, but they have helped me. I have come to see that more and more in the scriptures, God honors women along with men, and that he lays out a plan for men and women to complement each other. 
to serve him together side by side. That they are not the same, that there is distinction that he's designed us from the, from the very beginning. That difference isn't bad. That it means that a husband and wife interact differently. That a mother mothers differently than a father fathers. And that the highest level of leadership in the church is designed to be held by men. That's just eldership. And they are those who lead and teach the greatest doctrine in the church. But they lead as servants like Jesus. And we as women and men who aren't elders, we ask questions. And we offer thoughts. But we also follow and trust the leaders that God has put in front of us, trusting that God leads them. It is never about domineering or belittling. That's the opposite of leadership like Jesus. In the Bible, God uses women to save his people, to speak the truth, to change the course of events, and to greatly impact his kingdom. And he still does that today. God uses his women. We know this. For me, this has meant that on my journey, I had to recognize that I didn't need to grasp for something that God had reserved for men. I had to recognize that submission wasn't bad. It meant that I had to work through some of my experiences, some of which were really wounding. And I also had to work through my pride, let's be real. But it meant that my brain didn't function any less than a man's. It meant that my impact wasn't diminished because I was a woman. It meant that I wasn't broken because I was a woman. It meant that I was called to serve God with all that he had put before me because I'm someone who follows Jesus. You know, um, how do we do this in team in the real world? I, I'm delighted to say whenever I do teaching notes, which usually go out on a Thursday, Taylor is one of those who gets my notes every week and she reads it and prays and is very insightful and thoughtful and has taken all of this experience. So you may not hear her every Sunday, but sometimes I'm flat out quoting her. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with saying that. And we need to grow comfortable with what the Bible teaches. So here's what we do know, okay? Now that you've heard a lot, and you may want to listen again and pause and stop and reflect and read. Uh, here's what we know. There are honest disagreements about what Paul's saying. Uh, what we've tried to lay out is what we believe the scriptures to teach. But there are people who have a different opinion. So you could be complementarian, distinct roles, equally loved by God, which we are as a local church. Or you can be egalitarian. And this might sound like a cop-out, but it isn't. Both people can follow and love Jesus deeply. This isn't the dividing line on who's accepted in God's family and who's rescued from sin and wickedness and death. But how you teach is going to drive how you live. And what you believe will always drive your behavior. So hear me, hear me, hear me. That sounds like a quote. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Um, we can disagree agreeably. What we need to do as followers of Jesus is not model our sick society, which says my opinion must drive you to the ground. And so we hold firm to the scriptures. We hold firm to our convictions. But at the same time, we hug one another. We show grace to one another. And we don't make this the issue. We choose to respect each other and continue to read the text honestly, knowing that sometimes my biases 
are in the way of me walking in the light and in the truth. Now, this will be way easier to skip over. We're doing this in December, man. We're crazy. It'd be way easier to talk about peace and joy instead of what could be a conflict in the church. But that's not the kind of church we are. We read the whole text and we try to learn it. And so next week, with all this in mind, we're going to look at elders and deacons from chapter 3 next Sunday. So what do we, what do we stand on? You're like, Jose, you've said a lot of things. Write this down or take a photo of it. It might be helpful. We believe male and female together bear the image of God, equal in value and complementary in roles. Everyone's valued by God. But he's given us from Genesis distinct roles. And so what we want to do is we want to live in our lane and honor Jesus and live peaceful and joy-filled in Jesus-like lives, which is not easy for everyone to, to walk in. Not always easy. There can be confusion in response to this text. I have been confused from this text. There can be frustration there can be processing as you hear it. But in the end, we respond to hearing what God has said by saying that we can live in a fitting manner as someone who knows Jesus. Friends, you and I can do this because God is trustworthy. We can do this because he is the best authority in our lives. We can do this because what he tells us is the best thing for us to hear. He has loved us with the greatest love. Jesus has lived and died and risen again with power to heal us of our sin, of our corruption, and our hurt. And because of that, we can read a text like this and say, we can live in a fitting manner as people who have been changed by Jesus. We can say that God calls us to live as a person with a right heart at prayer as a disciple who doesn't need to flash his or her stuff by their clothing, as a humble, teachable learner who follows their leaders, as someone who understands that authority can be put in the right place. We can say we can do all of this because Jesus has loved us and changed us. Therefore, we can live in a fitting manner as people who follow our Savior. Uh, thanks, Taylor. What we want to do is, together as God's people, respond to what we're hearing. We don't just hear things, but we take those things, whether we agree or disagree, and we throw them back in worship to Jesus. Because in the end, he is our leader, and he's the one we're chasing after, and he's the one who's holy and right and true, and he's the one who's best to correct us when we're off and affirm and encourage us when we're discouraged, even when we're living in the right. So a couple of responses uh, this morning that make sense. We're going to sing in a moment. Obviously, Brandon's playing, and, and we're going we're gonna to sing and respond. That's one uh, way we can respond. Baptism. We can choose to walk away from our own way of living and follow the way of Jesus. We can choose to receive the good news that God loves us even though we're sinners and that he made a path of escape by taking our guilt and shame on the cross and rising again so that he could set us free to live in a whole new way. And so maybe this morning, even though we're talking about men and women, let's talk about holy and unholy. Let's talk about those who are living in the light and those who are living in darkness. If you find yourself in that place, don't be discouraged. Just get out of that place and step into the light and follow the way of Jesus. 
And we would love to pray with you and, and see that response in baptism this morning. And as, as well, uh, we have a prayer room. We mentioned it last week. Some of you weren't here. And there's an opportunity every Sunday, every gathering moving forward, because we're walking in with all sorts of stuff. And it may have something to do with something I've said, or you're just like, Jose, I got laid off this week. Or Jose, I found out that this person that I really care for has hurt me, even this morning. And so what we want to do is we want to take all of our stuff. I may be sick in body. Uh, we want to pray for Vicki Marshman. We, uh, Steve's one of our elders, and she's one of our leaders. And uh, she's back in the hospital with some negative symptoms from leukemia and feeling down. She was making such great progress. We want to pray God's continued healing. So if you're going through anything, uh, one of our new responses will be, as we're beginning to sing, you can slip out of your seat. And you don't have to wait till the tables are open. You can slip out of your seat. And then over there on your right, I just want you to look with me real quick. There's a little easel with a sign right by the door. And out that door across the hallway is our office with couches and chairs. And there's a prayer team that is already waiting. They've been thinking about you, just not knowing who you are. And they want to pray God's blessing over your life. So that's an appropriate way to respond as well. Why don't we stand? Let's begin by giving thanks to God. We'll worship. The prayer room will be open at any time. And then for the rest of us at the right time, uh, we'll be led to the tables to take the bread and the cup. Jesus, we humble ourselves before you. And we say thank you that you're our great high priest who's made a way into the most holy place. We can be close in relationship to you, not because we're good or we bring the right sacrifices, but because, Jesus, you are good and you tore the curtain dividing us from the presence of the Father and you tore it in two and now you said, come in. Those that are hungry can eat. Those that are thirsty can drink. Those who need life can experience it. We want to worship you, King Jesus. And as we move towards Christmas, remember you're coming. Remember that you're coming again to make everything new. And in light of that, we admit we're broken at times and we're confused at times. We're hurting at times. So Jesus, we return to you and put our trust in you. You're our only hope. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name.